So Jack, you're an ex-professional footballer. You had a career as a defender and a versatile player. You had a, a spell in Hong Kong uh, with a range of football clubs out there. You played for Cork Hibernian, Halifax Town, Barry Rochdale as well. Um, you are one of the most respected coach educators uh, in, in England. You have your UEFA A licence as well as your FA Academy Manager qualification. My first question to you then is, what is your first memory of football? Whoa, um, well, I'd have to say um, playing against two of the players that were regarded as the best players in the world. Okay. That's, I'd have to say that. So I did have the opportunity to play against Pelly when Santos were touring Hong Kong. And same thing again with uh, Eusebio, played against Benfica. We lost 5-2 to Santos. It was on the Chinese New Year series and it was a representative game for the overseas select team. Um, and the same with uh, Benfica, we lost 3-1 against Benfica. So, so they were nice moments to play against the best players in the world. But, but there's many, many sort of moments and memories of uh, playing a sport I absolutely loved and, and enjoyed every minute of it. In terms of your upbringing then, so in Scotland, Glasgow, Celtic's your team. Yep. So very influential in terms of obviously you playing, you Lisbon Lions, 67 yes. European Cup. Well, you've got a great uh, memory, <laughs> but you'll be well versed in, in sort of Celtic. No, I was lucky, Christy, because um, at the time Celtic were in the heyday. Jockstein had just come to the club and you've just said uh, the Lisbon Lions era where they won the European Cup in 67. And I used to go and watch the games, the culture, as you know, in places like Glasgow, it's, it's really vibrant um, and it was wonderful I mean my memories of going to Celtic Park were 80,000 people I didn't pay to get in I was about six feet when I was about 13 and you used to get a lift over the turnstiles in those days so you get almost a free pass into the ground but I also watched Celtic when they played Leeds in the European Cup semi-finals they beat Leeds 1-0 away and I think it was 2-1 at Hamden Park they switched the game to Hamden and there was 130,000 people at that game. So it gives you an idea of the times, but it was really vibrant, that culture. And what, why Celtic? Was that down to your, your upbringing? Yes. From, from your, your family? You, do you have brothers and sisters? Or yes. kind of that come along? I mean, I think when you're born a Catholic in Glasgow, then there's only one team you can support. And similarly, well, you could have supported Patrick Thistle. But it was almost split down the middle between Celtic and Rangers. And Patrick Thistle were the nearest team to him. And I did go and used to watch some games. But you've got this sort of inbuilt thing about Celtic. Because all your friends, the schools you go to, it's, it's all Celtic. Um, so you, you're kind of almost pushed into that kind of world. Um, and it's, well, you know, the history... Um, Celtic very much the Catholic side, Rangers very much the traditional Protestant side and that's what you kind of brought into and that's that's how it sort of came about for me. Just on that so you mentioned the religious aspect of obviously supporting Celtic and uh, growing up in, yeah. in an era where potentially tensions were, yes. were, were challenging for, for yourself. Did you ever experience sectarianism in terms of playing football as well as maybe away from football? I, I didn't experience it so much playing football um, I played with um, the Catholic, the Boys Guild, who were a Catholic organisation. I played there when I'd sort of in my early teens age. But then when I moved on and started to play with clubs like Glasgow United, Glasgow Amateur, they were bigger sort of amateur clubs. It was very mixed. But, but in terms of the culture, um, sometimes, and, and I, I look back on some of the experiences where you didn't get uh, an interview for a job, because of the school you went to so th so there was that kind of um, bias and prejudice that existed at that time so that's as much as I experienced um, but nothing sort of like that in football. So obviously you started playing at Queen's Park as, yes. as, you, as you alluded to then and then got the opportunity to go to Hong Kong mm -hmm. just on your point then in terms of your story so Hong Kong Rangers, a bit of symmetry with Glasgow Rangers. Mm. Obviously down to your, to your upbringing, was there a little bit of a resentment to that? Did you have to kind no. of drop, drop your viewpoints around no, maybe political and religious identity? Or? No, it, no. It, it was never a problem for me. It was just a culture that you're kind of born and personally never a, never a problem. And since I've been away from Glasgow all that long time, it just doesn't matter. Mm. I think when you live in the city, you sort of 
caught up with that. So there was absolutely no problem at all um, going to Ibrox. And funnily enough, prior to going to Hong Kong, when I'd be about 17, that, that sort of year, I went to Hong Kong, uh, I was a month into my 18th birthday. I'll never forget the date we arrived in Hong Kong. It was Thursday the 10th of September, 1970. But just prior to that, in the football season, I'd been invited out with trials with St. Johnson. And guess who they were playing? Glasgow Rangers. Um, and, and it came about in a, 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 an incredible way, really. I used to phone the manager of Glasgow Amateurs, who I was playing for at the time, on a Friday night. Bear in mind, people didn't have mobiles, people didn't have phones in their houses. I used to do that from the public um, call box. And uh, Andy had said to me, he said, uh, St. Johnson want you to come out and play for them tomorrow. And I went, oh. Um, so the meeting at the Royal Hotel in Suckey Hall Street, I think it was one o'clock, a half twelve, something, like, or maybe even twelve o'clock. Yeah, they're playing Glasgow Rangers at Ibrox. Now this was the reserves then. So here I am, 17-year-old lad, getting the suit and tie on, or what I had, I think I had a jacket and a pair of pants with a tie. Went down, met the players. It, it was really intimidating for me that I, I felt out my depth, you know, because I was a little bit, well, I was very much, very shy, um, and, and I, I just felt a bit uncomfortable. Now, I went to Ibrox. I know we got beaten. They, they had quite a few of their well-known players playing at the time, and I kind of clammed up, and that happened to me twice in that season. I've been playing really good football, but it happened um, with St. Johnson, and it happened at Air United. I was invited out to a trial with Air United. Can't remember who they were playing either. And on both occasions, I kind of tightened up. So when the opportunity came with Hong Kong, it was quite strange in many ways because I never thought I'd be going there or I'd even want to go there. And you might well ask, well, why did you go for the trial? But I did. Um, it was a Sunday morning, if I remember. It was over at the old Hamilton Ackies ground. It was against an ex-Rangers select team. And I just played with freedom and, and that, took the shackles off me and that's how I played I was I knew I was good enough but just in terms of impressing other people was always a bit of an issue for me I think a lot to do with that had been my background and my growing up come from a single parent family my father was never there um, never took an interest in anything and the strange thing was about the Rangers story in particular um, nobody knew I was gone I never told my mates never told my mother I just went and that was a type of that's just the way I was at that time. So, so obviously you left Glasgow, went yes. to, to Hong Kong, as, yes. as, you, as you mentioned. What was that experience like? Life-changing. Different culture, different Absolutely. way of living. Absolutely. It, it changed my life, Christy, uh, for the better. Just before I'd gone to Hong Kong, I started to get, ooh, I'm not so sure whether I want to go. And my little mother at the time, I'll never forget, in the kitchen, when I told her, she said, uh, you've got to go. She says, and if you don't like it, we'll find a way of getting you back. And that gave me a bit of confidence to sort of go. But yeah, we went 22 hours on one of these old kind of boys. There was no jumbos then. Um, arrived in Hong Kong. Big press conference in Hong Kong. Oh, it was massive. It was absolutely massive. First professional league in uh, Asia. And it was massive. They were interviewing us. We went there from the airport, stayed in a hotel for the first two weeks and almost started to get acclimatised. I mean, my memories of Hong Kong, we, we landed at the old Kai Tak airport. It was an airport where the runway kind of went into the sea almost. You know, it was really strange. And then we went across on the ferry to the Hong Kong island and there was these lights, smells. It was, it was like Disneyland. It was fascinating. Um, and that was my arrival in Hong Kong. And then from there, we moved into a clubhouse. Nothing grand about it. Us three guys didn't go into big flash penthouses or anything like that. We shared a room in a clubhouse where Chinese lads also had rooms at the back and the manager even lived in Petrie his own. That's how we were in Hong Kong then. So you mentioned three of you. So was there other players that came with you during Another that period? Another two lads. A lad called um, Derek Curry, who played at Motherwell for a spell, and another Glasgow lad called Walter Gerrard that I mentioned. Yeah. Now here's an interesting thing, both these lads lived the rest of their life in Hong Kong. Wow. It wasn't a place I could ever see myself settling in. Mm. Um, 
but they lived their lives there. Sadly, Walter died about six, seven years ago. Walt, Derek's still surviving. He made a lot of money in the property that he bought. In fact, he's a millionaire now, Derek. And uh, he lives now in Bangkok. And that story came about because much later on in my career in Hong Kong, I played with a team called Seiko, people that own the watch companies, Thai Chinese right. owned it, hugely rich people. Um, and, I, and they were the top side in Hong Kong after that kind of left Rangers. But what was football football like out there? What was the standard like? How did you enjoy playing the games? Was there was there a challenge yeah. in terms of the opponents and the people that you come across? Well, this was my first full time venture. I think in my contract, I've still got all the old contracts. I think I was on something like sixty pound a month. That was a lot of money then. Yeah. You know, a lot of money, and um, the crowds. It was incredible. I'm talking about 28,000 in the national. In Hong Kong, they don't have their own grounds because land's precious. Probably the most expensive real estate in the world. Um, so they share grounds and the fixtures are sort of around. Um, but when we had the games at the Hong Kong Stadium, full houses. The other venue was a place called Boundary Street, which held about 10, 12,000 full houses, all our games, because it was so big at the time. There was no other distractions. You didn't have the Premier League. Television wasn't what it was, and local football was booming. Technically, they were very, very good. You couldn't play the type of physical game you could play here because the humidity is really, really yeah. warm and humid. But technically, the Chinese were very good, and, uh, and the grounds were quite hard, you know, uh, most of the year. Yeah. Uh, real hard sort of surfaces then. But yeah, they, they, there was a difference. It wasn't um, as fast or as physical, but certainly very technical. Uh, tell me the story about Carson Young. Oh. So Carson well, Young's the ex-Birmingham City owner. Yes. He's well, now in jail for money laundering. Right, yeah. Um, well, multi-millionaire, as you probably know. Um, he made his money uh, in casinos, and um, he had casinos in Macau, which was a at the time, it was a three-hour ferry ride away. It's not now. They've got a bridge from Hong Kong all the way to Macau now. And, and that was the place where people would go and do the gambling. He, he owned that and many, many more things. So when I went out at home, after I'd finished my career in Hong Kong, I went out um, to visit. This would be about, what are we in now? This would be about 2008, nine, maybe around then. Went out to see a friend of mine, went out to see Walter. Derek came up from Bangkok to meet with us. We had a great time, seen some old friends. And then um, Cass and Young uh, had wanted to, to have a banquet, banquet uh, a kind of lunch. We all ex-Chinese players had played at the team. And he was a big fan of Hong Kong Rangers. And when I met Cass and Young, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know he had a, he owned Birmingham City mm. at the time. He was, he told me, he says, I remember you very well. Jackie, they used to call me in Hong Kong. Um, I remember you very well, Jackie. He says, he was a supporter. I used to climb over the, 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 the stadium wall so we could watch the game. So he was a big <laughs> fan. And um, so Carson Young was sort of going, telling us all about when he was a young lad and how much he enjoyed watching football. Um, and I'd taken over me, by this time I'd been, I was working at Bolton Wanderers um, and I'd taken over some signed shirts. So I gave Carson one of the signed shirts as a gift, not at the time. So we had a great day. I was interviewed then on Hong Kong uh, TVB as well. Big, big news, it was good. Because um, I was, we, me, Walter and Derek were the first overseas year players okay. to have ever played in Hong Kong. So we kick-started a whole exodus of overseas players going out to Hong Kong over the years, but we were the first. Um, but the story is that um, Carson, the following day, he sent one of his henchmen in a car because he, he had his bodyguards and you know he was a high-profile man and he sent his, one of his bodyguards over to the hotel to pick up the shirt and I gave him the shirt and Carson got back in touch to thank me very much and if there's anything more he could do, just let us know and that was my experience with Carson Young. Yeah. How did you come back to the UK? Well, it, it, the journey's really interesting. I went to Hong Kong uh, in 1970, played their season 70-71. Um, 
We won the double. We won the league. We won their FA Cup. Um, and that year, so by the December, we played played in the, uh, the the sort of showcase game against Santos of Brazil. Bear in mind, Brazil had just won the World Cup in 70, yeah. hadn't they? In Mexico. So I'd watched that on the television. And here I am playing against some of these big superstars. Now, I was a substitute in that game. I only came on for the last 20 minutes, but just turned 18. It was unbelievable. Um, but that same year, we went to Vietnam to play in a tournament around the January or so, I think it was January, February. We went to Saigon. The war was on at this point, the Vietnam War. I can remember all the military personnel. We played in a tournament and won the tournament in South Vietnam at the time. We beat the Saigon. Saigon national team. It was the Thai national, uh, the Vietnamese national team. Uh, we beat them one nil. So that was an experience in itself. But another great experience was, I was selected to play for the Hong Kong youth team, and the Hong Kong, the Asian Youth Championships were being held in Tokyo. This was at the end of the football season. So me and another lad were selected to play for Hong Kong, and we went out there, stayed in the old Olympic Village in Tokyo and uh, played in that tournament. We didn't qualify. We were in the same group as South Korea. We, we drew 1-1 with South Korea. And I'll tell you how I remember that. Well, I scored the goal. Um, so it was a 1-1 draw. I think Israel were in our, that, our group as well. They were, they were classed as the Asian uh, Federation. Um, but we didn't qualify, but what an experience. And that had all happened in my first year and to top it all off, won the double. So it was great. At the end of that season, I got a, uh, there was a guy called Kai Johansson, another ex-Glasgow Rangers player. This sort of affinity that keeps cropping up with Glasgow Rangers is strange given that I'm Celtic man. <laughs> now Kai, Rain, Kai, Kai Johansson had come to Glasgow looking to take players out to South Africa, where he was manager of a team that played in the National League at the time, a team called Arcadia Shepherds. Now, on the back of all that success, you'd think I'd want to go back to Hong Kong, but there was something in this wanderlust of, that sounds interesting. So lo and behold, I went to South Africa. I only stayed in South Africa 10 months because I got a call from my old manager in Hong Kong, Ian Petrie asking me, if, why don't you come back out again? And I did. So I'd left South Africa, went back out to Hong Kong. This would be then around about the January, February of 72. Went back to Hong Kong, played with Hong Kong Rangers for a couple month, maybe two months. A team who were out there called Easton, who had about three or four expat players, played at Easton. At the end of that season, I was bought by another club in Hong Kong who was the big up-and-coming team, Seiko, that I just mentioned earlier. So I stayed with Seiko from 73, I joined them, went on a pre-season tour of, of Thailand. They had all the big Chinese, big-name Chinese players. Derek had ended up there as well, and Walter, my two compatriots from when we first went. Won most things again there and stayed with Seiko from 73 to 75. So that was my kind of block of Hong Kong. So you might be talking about one, two, three, maybe three and a half years interrupted by a spell out in uh, Pretoria in South Africa. So you mentioned then Hong Kong wasn't your home. It was more of a temporary yes. opportunity. And you mentioned South Africa as well. Yes. So when did you know the time was right to come back to the UK? Well, at the end of 75 state, um, season, um, 70, 74, 75, at the end of that season, I decided that um, there's something that's missing in my life. And I didn't know what it was. Now, by this time, you had a lot of expats playing in Hong Kong. For instance, at um, Hong Kong Rangers, you had ex-Glasgow Rangers players. You had uh, Willie Henderson, who's a bit of a household name, Alec Willoughby and Jim Forrest, they were big name players. They were playing then, at, but Seiko still sort of cleaned up, won FA Cups, leagues. Might not, I don't, don't think we won them in both seasons, but they're always up, up 
at the top or thereabouts. So at the end of um, that season in 75, I thought, I'm missing something in my life. Didn't know what it was, but I didn't feel that comfortable um, as a single lad being in Hong Kong. And the social life was great. Anyway, um, I left Hong Kong because Alex Willoughby was leaving Hong Kong. The lad I just mentioned, it was at Rangers. And Alex had said that he was going to take over um, Cockabernance. And there was always something in me about going to Ireland, you know, because my parents, their background is Irish. I just, something about going to Ireland appealed to me for some strange reason. But I played the season there um, with Cork Cabernians and, and enjoyed it. But very different brand of football. Abs physical, absolutely very physical, um, quicker. Um, but, and the pitches weren't great. Crowds weren't fantastic either. But it was good to play in the League of Ireland and it was nice. There's some good stadiums, but some of the others were not as good as maybe they could have been. At the end of that season, um, Rodney Marsh came and played uh, on a match-to-match -match basis. And Rodney Marsh was doing that. I think he'd left Man City. And he was playing on a match-to-match -match basis because he was going to go out and play in the States with Tampa Bay Rowdies. So there was a little bit of interest about me going to Tampa Bay Roundy, Rowdies. And, and I kind of had fancied the idea of going to the States. And to top it off, at the end of the season, Cork Hibbs were invited to go and play in the States, in the AFL, I think it was then. It wasn't the NFL. But Cork Hibbs would be one of the wildcard teams that would play each team in the league, which meant we played, I think it was 12 games, how it worked out, in a three-week tour. That was from coast to coast. It was grueling. And I played in every game. I was exhausted, but I did play in every game. And, and um, so, so th that was kind of, uh, it was a wonderful experience going out there with the lads. And there's a funny little story to tell on that because the great party animals, the Irish lads, great for a sing song and all the rest of it. And on the plane, as we flew from city to city, right across um, the states from New York, right over to Salt Lake City, down to California, up to Chicago, we did it all. Um, on one of the flights, um, well, first of all, the, the stewards on, and the stewardesses on the flight used to leave messages for the next crew to say, give them a few beers and a couple of glasses of champagne and you'll get a great um, crack out of them, you know, you'll, you'll sing songs. And they were, they were really sociable and singing songs and fabulous. One of the flights, Sidney Poitier, you remember the famous actor, Sidney yeah. Poitier? He was on a flight. And the boys and Sydney Poitier come up and shaking hands and <laughs> yeah, honestly, and um, I'll never forget that. I know he's just recently died, but um, Sydney Poitier, yeah, um, shaking hands with the lads, really singing the praises of the boys and the entertainment. So that was a little side story that went with that. But that that um, tour, I actually ended up playing in the last game Cork Cabanians ever played. It was, um, it was against Oakland Buccaneers. That was the last game of the tour. Cork Hibs folded after that. They had financial problems. Right. I might add, not because of the money I was getting, by the way, which wasn't <laughs> a great deal. But Cork Hibs had folded and that was the last game. So a real great club who'd a great record of being in Europe and doing really well. They, they had a great history in, in, in Ireland. I played in the last game for Cork Hibs, so Cork Hibs was no more. So how did the playing career come to an end? 83, um, kind of injuries, even the love of the game was starting to wane. I could feel it. Uh, and bear in mind also, we didn't have sports science, Christy. Mm. And if I'd have known then what I know now, I could have looked after myself even better but we didn't have those sort of things. Um, so I think all of that was sort of making me sort of feel the way that I was feeling towards the end. Is that in terms of diet training? Diet training, alcohol, lifestyle. lifestyle yeah. You know, there was a huge uh, drink culture surrounding football yeah. all through my career, coming from Glasgow, 
being in Hong Kong, even in the English League, it was, it, it, there was. And yeah, you can make a choice and not get involved, but and, and like now I know the difference. Um, I could have looked after myself better, I'd have to say that. But with the pressures, financial pressures that were starting to come on us, and bear in mind, I'd only ever played professional football since leaving school. I don't have an academic background. And um, what am I going to do? Started applying for jobs, found it really difficult. You know, I was applying for all sorts of jobs, fire service, police, salesman jobs. Couldn't, I couldn't do those jobs, but I was applying. I was really trying, couldn't get anything. Leisure attendant, couldn't get a job. Was that, was that hard in terms of you being this professional footballer, this athlete? Travelling the world, opportunities to play in front of people, no. playing the game that you love. Was, was that a challenge for you, going into a different industry? No, it no? was just trying to break into an industry that I probably wasn't qualified to get into because I'd only ever known the football side, the playing side. And I just, no, no academic and anything, so I didn't have a CV. I just kind of went and they take you at face value and probably thought he doesn't have the experience that we want for this type of job, might not be suitable. But then, lo and behold, the next door neighbours that had just arrived, the guy um, had just moved up in promotion from Birmingham to Manchester prison. He was in the prison service. So he'd, he'd fr he was from the Birmingham area and they'd moved up and he was commuting from there. And, and just in a conversation with my wife, he said, um, she told him about how difficult it is trying to find a job. And he said, has Jack never thought about the prison service? He says, they've got PE branches in the prison service, a really good job. So that kind of pricked my ears up. She said, look, why don't you have a think about that? And I, and I found, a, or he gave us a brochure. And in that brochure, there was a guy who I knew from a football playing days, a guy called Terry Cooper, who'd been a player at Bradford City. And I knew Terry from playing against him and things like that. And he joined the PE branch. So they had a, a, a branch of the prison service that specialised in PE. Right. So I phoned Terry, if I remember correctly, phoned Terry and uh, he said, I'll never forget his words, he said, it's the best thing I ever did, Jack. So that prompted me then to apply and you had to sit uh, an entrance examination that involved a little bit of maths and English and things. And I always remember going to the local library to get a bit of peace, to try and do a little bit of studying time and just brush up on some of the things. Because I had some of the old entrance examination papers from Graham next door. So I was starting to do a bit of that. You know, with two young kids at home, I couldn't do it at home. Did all that went for the entrance examination and that was at Strangeways Prison and this was my last chance. I can always remember, I can remember taking my rosary beads with me and all the usual the Catholic stuff that you do and sat in the car park and going up and there was maybe 20 people there for the, did the exam. And at the end of the exam, this guy came in in a uniform and he said, uh, he called these names out. My name wasn't mentioned. And he asked these guys to go out the room to get into another room. And I thought, I failed this, I've not got it. Then the guy proceeded to tell us, he says, those people have not got a job. He says, you people, you're the people that's passed. I was elated. There was three parts. There was a, a, an entrance exam, there was a medical and there was an interview. So the next stage was the interview stage. And that was a strange way, is it? HMP Manchester. It was the best interview you could ever get because one of the guys on the interviewing panel was a Stockport County fan and he'd watched me play. Stockport went in the same league as Halifax at the time. And the whole interview was talking about Stockport, Halifax, football. And I knew I'd done all right. And I knew the next part I would pass, which was the medical. I was in. So come the November, I joined the prison service. Now you've got to spend a year in uniform in the prison service before you can get into the specialist, but you've got to apply as a selection process and everything. But that was December 83, which meant shifts, alternate weekends, working evenings sometimes and everything. It was brilliant. Security, 
I was tailor-made for that type of job because I like discipline, I like that type of stuff, and it wasn't a hardship for me. I loved it, the camaraderie that existed. It was fantastic. Money was good and everything. Uh, and money wasn't great, but it was regular, yeah. and it made a difference. And then went up on the training course up in the, uh, at the at Wakefield, where they, where they do a training course for new recruits to the prison service. Started to keep get myself fit to prep for the selection course, and that didn't happen for two years before. Went on the selection course, got selected, and then I went on a two-year PE course. It was wonderful. What did you learn the most from 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 the prison environment? You know the different types of individuals that you'll come across. Is there anything that that stood out to you in terms of you your development and in what in what you learnt? Think, from that experience? Yeah. I think the prison service was an extension of being uh, in a team. I liked that. There was more discipline involved because obviously you have to work around the prisoners and the shifts that you have. Yeah. Um, th there was that side to cope with and it, it was much more arduous so it wasn't just doing a bit of training in the morning. It, you were there for long hours. Sometimes some of the, one of the shifts if I remember was an 11 hour shift. You do 40 hours a week but then you relied on overtime, so I was actually doing more than that because to get the money, it was doing all that. So the teamwork was great. The camaraderie of the people that I worked with was really good. It was, it was, it was interesting. When I went on to PE, that was in a smaller, more focused groups. And, and what I learned was respect for other sports. Because I used to think if somebody was a gymnast, I'd kind of, I didn't realize what went into being a gymnast. Physical, hard much harder than the, the football side of things at that time. So I learned about respecting other sports, other disciplines. I learned more about being part of a bigger team, but in PE it was being part of a smaller group. Um, and, and that developed me as a person because the, the PE training taught me to, to how to work, uh, to be good in class teaching because we used to take classes, used to actually take inmates, really difficult people, we used to be in structured PE sessions. So you had to prepare session plans, you become confident, you express yourself through your use of voice, your demonstrations, you've, you've got to be strong because you're dealing with people that are dysfunctional. You know, you're probably working with the most dysfunctional people that you could ever work with. And when I went to Garth, they were long-termers, you had to be doing four years and over. 70% of the population was lifers. I ran the football team. We, we, I managed to get the team into the Wigan and District League. Obviously all home games, but we had wonderful facilities. We never lost a game in two years. So I ran it as a disciplined, almost like a professional setup. And the guys that played for us, the prisoners, they were brilliant because they realized that we've got to be careful blotting our copybook. So we had, and they learned that, it was great. So how did that experience shape you in terms of your football coaching then? So you mentioned discipline then, I'm sure you've learned a lot in that experience. What it taught me um, was to be confident, how to, how to manage groups of people. So as a player, you tend to focus very much on your game, you know, your side of the game, um, instead of the bigger picture. That taught me how to manage people, how to express myself in front. How it, my leadership skills developed immensely from doing that because I, I see coaches as being people that are leaders, motivators. So I was all of that when I did my PE training and taking these groups of people. And when I went on my prelim and I passed my level two, that expressed itself in that way. That, that came across. I was confident when I did that. And, and how that, actually that's, that was the key thing that, that sort of took me into the coaching side then because when I did my prelim, we had to do pre-selections then before you could go on and do the, uh, the full badge, the advanced coaching license, which is the equivalent to the A license. And here's an interesting one. I, I went to um, one of these um, sessions they did. So they were held by the regional coaches. At the time, there was two guys, Alex Gibson, and, um, oh, I forget the other lad, that will come to me. And we, the, 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 the course was being held, or the day's event was being held at Rochdale. So when I was there, 
because um, you had to put a session on. I put my session on, felt really confident. You know you've done well. It's a bit like playing a game of football where you know you've played well. You know that you kinda, you've got the group in the palm of your hand. That was all as a result of my PE training, by the way, the confidence it had given me. Peter Barnes was on that day. I always remember Peter Barnes. And I can remember the guys um, saying to Peter, using me as an example, because Peter was a brilliant player, absolutely brilliant in his time at Manchester City. Could ping a ball and put it on a sixpence, which he was still doing in the, the demonstrations and, and the sessions that we were holding. But he lacked a little bit on the other side uh, at that point in time. I don't know how he went on from there. And I can remember the guys using me as an example. He says, think about how Jack's just delivered. He said, I felt 10 feet tall. It really gave me great self. I knew I was doing well. I knew I was confident because I'd worked hard to get there. And the prison service had helped me immensely. So that was the difference. The confidence, the way you express, the presence you have as a coach. Really important things that I think matter. I think they really... So I did my advanced coaching licence with the pros uh, and I'd finished playing of course then in I think it was 1990 around then, went down to Lily Show, two week course, physically demanding, physically demanding. Um, but I was fit and um, they brought you into, they put you into groups, there would be about maybe 80. So we, it was Mick Bodsworth was the other guy because Mick became my coach at the, on the full badge uh, and you were in groups of 20 um, so I'd, I'd have people at like David Moyes would have been in my group um, Chris Kamara, Paul Bracewell uh, Paddy Roach I think might have been it. so there was others that had sort of finished playing or were just, just in the throes of finishing playing on that course two weeks and, and I'll never forget and, and just to give you an idea I, I'm talking and telling you how I felt they used to mark you on a system then. I think you did three sessions. I can remember one of the sessions was forward runs without the ball. And I can remember it because I had Chris Kamara doing the forward runs for me. And, and, and the beauty of coaching at that time was you had players that were technically competent. You didn't have to worry about the touch. And that kind of helped me immensely. But I had three sessions and they used to score you on a system. It was an A to D. And A's were the high-flying mark. If you got a D, it was a fail. And a C was a, you know, getting towards it. On my last session, out of the 15, out of the criteria, out of the 15 criteria that they had, I got 13 A's. I'll never forget it. I'll never get any C's. The other two were B's. And that kind of just give me, I, I felt good. I, I would have been shocked if I hadn't passed because I'd worked so hard. I was physically prepared, I was mentally prepared. I didn't have a drink in the two weeks I was there. I went to bed prepared. I got up in the morning sometimes at five, six, and I'd go down to the pitch and visualize what, I was really focused, really focused. And I was rewarded for the work I'd put in. But thanks again to what I'd learned uh, through the prison service helped me immensely. So I was successful, passed my advanced coaching licence and I felt 10 feet tall. One of the key things that I kind of think about when you talk about that experience is that attention to detail. Yeah. So very much, you mentioned you went back to your room writing stuff out, very much of attention to detail. You used to visualise yeah. your um, sessions beforehand. Do you think that's the, the difference between good coaches and expert coaches is that attention to detail in yeah. terms of um, designing practices and preparing? Yeah. I, I think there's two things. I think you've got to love what you do, and, and I do. I, ab I absolutely love it. And, and you've got to look at it as if it's not a job. So I, I, both of them has applied to me. I, I love what I do, and as a result of loving it so much, I don't even see it as a job. I, I, it's a pleasure, and, and I get paid for doing that. But you don't get paid right away. You've got to work hard. I only wanted to work hard because I had a genuine desire to do it. I didn't know what the future might hold. I didn't know that Bolt Wanderers would come on the ride. And I didn't know I'd have 30 years with the EFA. I didn't know I would be making extra money. Do I did it because I knew I had to do it because I, I wanted to do it. And I wanted to be the best I could possibly be. And I spent a lot of time writing things out freehand, 
talking to people, going and observing good coaches. I did all that. I did all that to prepare me to make me a better coach. There's no easy way around it. It's, it's got to be done. It's interesting you say that because when we see certain people within the, within the game, people in business, in leadership, we always see them in terms of their limelight, their glory, but we don't necessarily see the underlying layers of what you've just mentioned around the disappointment, the oh, constant trialing, constant trying to, to yeah. get opportunities and then obviously no, eventually getting them. I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the, the best part of my sort of career when I'd done all my bits and pieces with the FA, continued to do all that, still working in the prison service and Bolton Wanderers was a wonderful experience for me. So, so talk to me about that experience at Bolton. Then. Well, uh, in 1997, um, Bolton didn't have the academy they have now. Martin Dobson, you, you might remember famous ex-Burnley, ex-Everton, ex-England international. He was looking for a life. It's funny my whole journey. People, rather than going for interviews, it's funny how people kind of pick yeah. up and maybe what you're doing in, in the area. Martin Dobson, through a friend of mine, had sort of put out some feelers asking whether I'd be interested in coming and doing a bit of coaching in the academy. Bear in mind, it was all part-time. So I did. I went down to the old Burnden Park at the time, met Martin. He was talking to some people, uh, scouts and different things about what he was going to try and do at the club. Came across very well. Um, gave us some kit and, and, and I was kind of signed up to do something two nights a week, I think it was. And at that time, it was local in Farnworth. It was a place called Harper Green, which is a, a secondary school in Farnworth. It was only two minutes from my house. So started to do that. Um, did a bit of coaching with the under-16s schoolboy team, the boys that are just moving in, possibly to become first-year scholars. And David Lee, the ex-Bolton player, worked with me, me and David, got on really well with David. And uh, we did all that. And when we did the um, training sessions, every group was on the pitch at the same time. So we had a, an AstroTurf astro pitch, but you only have a little area and you've got to put your sessions on for the boys. That's how it worked then. And it was good, enjoyed it. Great games programme, that, that was the real difference. I thought these, these were, they weren't scholars, but they were, they were the elite grassroots players. So some good boys playing at the time uh, and loved the games programme. And that was my introduction. Martin got sacked at, at one point and another guy had took over called Chris Sully. And, and in 2000, Chris, um, the, the, the club had moved to the Reebok. Sam was, I think he came in around 98, 99 club were pushing to get into the Premier League. They subsequently had 11 or so years in the Premier League. We had lost our on stream, the academy. 2004, Chris asked me, would you consider coming in full time? And he asked me to put a little business plan together because I'd been doing a lot of these football development programmes, coach education stuff. And I did a little bit of research and found that Bolton could apply to become a centre. We could draw down funding for it. So it could be self-sustainable this model you know if we became a center and i could still continue to do a little bit of coaching at the club 2004 that happened the manager liked the idea and sam had said to chris at the time we'll underwrite it up to the tune of 100 grand for the first year we made money straight away christy we made money and after two or three years we were posting profits after all our costs had taken out about 280,000. So we became a very viable enterprise. So much so that the chief executive at the time, Alan Duckworth, decided that we don't sit any longer in the academy. And what he did was he took us out of the academy because we were bringing in a lot of money. And I became part of the senior management team at Bolton Wanderers. So my title then was coach education manager. Well, it was actually coach education manager in international soccer schools. Some inter so I kind of overseen all that. Uh, but the coach education, what well, was bringing in money, and Alan being an accountant, of course, had seen the benefits of that. So I became part of the senior management team and we were successful. And it was wonderful. I mean, I, 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 Bolton Wanderers at that time was the type of club, the model you would use for any club. Yeah. 
it was it was so rich and vibrant. We, we had by then sports science people. We had sports psychologists. Now, if anybody said to me at the time, we're going to have sports psychologists in football, I'd have thought, why is there something wrong with the players? They need to see somebody. Nothing further from the truth. We had these, we had full-time sports psychologists with the academy. It was all about the mindset. And I always thought, even when I was playing, that's a really important area about building up the mind and getting you mentally strong and how to deal with disappointments. It's a really important part that, that I think sports psychology plays. I, I was never introduced to it as a player, but I really bought into it because the guys at the time, they, they were fantastic. We had a guy called Mike Ford. They, they weren't just responsible for working in the psychological corner. They developed a culture and a philosophy. They used to say things like, and I always remember these sayings, that when you work at Bolton Wanderers, you've got to have a good first touch. That just doesn't apply to being a player and having a good first touch. That's every member of staff. If anybody comes in contact with you, you should represent and portray an image that they would want with that type of club. And, and that's what it was like. It was rich, it was vibrant. They were wonderful people. Another one of my sayings, we want to make you the best that you could possibly be. So they'll invest in you. But we want to make it so good that you won't want to leave. And I didn't, and neither did anybody else. The people, it was, it was a dream. And we had great times. Good group of people have gone on to greater things now. Some of them are working in the higher echelons of the FA, some working in the Premier League, some working in other industries. They've all gone on to great things. And it's funny, sometimes in your life when you get a collection of good people, it doesn't happen often where you're in a place which is so wonderful to be. It only happens for short periods of your life. And you wonder, and Bolton subsequently, uh, Sam left. The chairman brought in people that were doing my job. Uh, it all died a death. I'd left with a bad taste in my mouth uh, by 2014. I, I just had to get out of the club. Very acrimonious departure uh, with the chairman at the time. But it started to go before that around 2011. It was slipping, it was sliding, they'd lost. And the model was great. So if you don't like the personnel, fine, but don't get rid of that model. That was the best model I've ever seen at a football club. I get the sense that you've, you've come in as, a, as an educator, a coach, and then had to put a, a different hat on in terms of leadership and uh, kind of a business mindset. Yep. Just on your point there around different management and different types of people, do you think the element of culture is underestimated within Absolutely. football? You, you see different examples within yep. the modern game at the moment, but... You, you mentioned the term culture and that, that yeah. sense of togetherness and great people. Yeah. From a leadership point of view, is that underestimated? Absolutely. Uh, in, in the, at the time when I was in good terms with the then chairman, um, Phil Gartside, God rest his soul, he's no longer here now. Bolt Wanderers have a rich, t if you use them as an example, they've got a, a fantastic rich history. 1888, I think they were formed. Founder members of the Football League, won the FA Cup. Yeah years. I've always said that we are just custodians for the people of that town. We are lucky to be in place at this point in time. Same with Celtic, same with Birmingham, same with Villa, same with all the clubs. We're lucky people to be there but we are there to look after that club for the people because they'll be around for a lot longer. Now I used to say to Phil, when you bring in a manager, because the managers he brought in after Sam it could be for other reasons, but they didn't do as well as Sam. So, what is the culture of Bolton Wanderers? So, do you, when you bring in a manager, do you just suddenly capitulate and he brings in his own culture, his new people? Because that's what happens. They bring in new people. All the people who are there tend to go with the manager. All the new, So, they're kind of restarting again. But there must be a core element that belongs to the club. What is it you want? How does Bolton Wanderers want to play football? What do the people of Bolton Wanderers expect from this club? What's your culture? What's your standards? What's your values? And you know, it sounds so elementary. They don't have it. He actually said to me, he says, you're right, Jack. He says, I wish we had. But I think it's such quick reactions to what's happened. They don't prepare well. 
You have to prepare these things years in advance. You have to, and then you've got a smooth machine. Different people, but similar to what you've been doing. Maybe even at a lower level because you've not got the finances. So I just wonder how many clubs actually do that? How many clubs have a culture? How many clubs prepare for that transition? Because it's going to happen. You still live in the Bolton area? Yes. Do you ever go back to Bolton? Yes. Yeah. Um, my, my son and my grandson are season ticket holders. Okay. I went, um, the last game I went to see was a great game actually. I went to see um, the game against Sunderland um, last season where they won 6-1. I don't go regular, um, but, um, but that's one of the games I did go and see. 20,000 crowd, uh, great result. And funnily enough, after the game, uh, I went into the hotel you know, just with having a drink after the game. And I met Jimmy Phillips, who was the ex-Academy, ex bolton Wanderers player, ex-Academy manager who'd finished the club. And we had a great chat because it was his first game back as well. And we were talking about those times and how rich it was and sadly how it declined. And yeah. So last question, Jack. Go on. If you could go back and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? Think longer term. I think as an 18 year old, the initial decision to go there was life changing as I've said and I've kind of almost given you a flavour of my life. Um, I have enjoyed it so I think it's important that you enjoy it but I think I'm talking about culture and philosophy and values. I, I, I didn't really have a long term plan and, and I think that might have made me more stable and who knows I may have not gone on that journey and experienced. I've no, I've no regrets about that. It, it was wonderful. But certainly I think I should have planned a wee bit better for the future. And, and the person that sits here today is certainly not the same person that was there when I was 18. You, you wouldn't expect it to be. You kind of live your life a little bit more free and open. But, um, but look, I, I'm a happy lad. Football has been really kind to me. A, a sport that I was introduced as a boy in Glasgow, kicking a ball about. And here I am today, still involved, doing my stuff at UCFB um, and loving every minute of what I do. Um, so I've been a lucky lad. Um, but my key thing would be plan, prepare, work hard and love every minute of what you do because it won't last forever. No passion, no point. You couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Perfect.